Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39, we'll be looking at the whole chapter today, but it's a short chapter, so relax. When I was uh, a teenager, my dad was given the opportunity to move the family to Brazil for two years, and he took it. And, and, and I remember a, as a teenager, going into a foreign country, how lonely I felt. I remember walking down to um, the store, and my mom wanted me to go down and get some bread. And I didn't even know how to ask for it. I, I, I couldn't speak their language. Kids would be playing outside, playing soccer. And, at least, and early on, I didn't know them. I, and I went to school. I didn't know anybody at the school. It was just, it was, it was so lonely for me initially. But at least I was with my family, which helped significantly. As Genesis 39 opens up, the text says this. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Yeah, I, I was scared, but I was with my family at least. This man is betrayed by his brothers and made a slave, and as Tim referenced from the psalm, where the psalm tells us that he was actually shackled as a slave and taken down to Egypt. He didn't know anybody. He's, what, 17 years old. He's, he's scared. He can't speak. They put him up on a slave block, and Potiphar buys him, the captain of the guard. Now, there's debate. But, but, but some scholars have actually argued that because he was captain of the guard, he had all kinds of rights with executing people. How scary would that be? Do, do, do you see? So, so when, Psalm, I'm Psalm, when Genesis 39 opens up, we have a young man who is afraid, who has been betrayed, not because of anything he's directly done, He's a good son, but he was pushed away. And here he is in Potiphar's house. How would you think about God in those moments? What could be your thoughts? You know, one of your thoughts could be, if this is what it means to be a believer in Yahweh, I'm out of here. Isn't it possible? At least to be indifferent. I read this text and all kinds of things flow through my mind. At least, you know what I would say? I'm all alone, even from God. Have you ever felt like God is distant because the way you've been mistreated. 
Folks, we have all been there, haven't we? And, and, and we tend to interpret God through our circumstances rather than our circumstances through God. It's so natural. And we would be there in Egypt alone saying, God's not even with me. And yet this story wants you to know in, in glaring terms that in your darkest moment, God is there. So look at what we find here in verses 2 to 6. The text says this. The Lord was with Joseph. Do you know how important that is? In a story where he is distant from everybody, he is not distant from God. The Lord was with Joseph, and God's presence was what we might call an active presence. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From that time, he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So, Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except that the food that he ate. Is that an act of God? In a time, in his darkest moment, when he's all alone, he can't speak, the new master could put him to death at any moment. In the midst of all that, God is there, but God is active. God is so active that whatever Joseph touches, it's like it turns to gold. And I don't know what that all looked like, but whatever he did, people began saying like, wow, I like being around that guy. So much so that the word got to Potiphar himself. Potiphar watched wherever that guy goes, good things follow. I like him. And the text says he found favor in his eyes. It's really important because you're going to find later that God is behind even that. But, but he found favor in Potiphar's eyes. And, and Potiphar then got to the point where he said, I'm going to give him just a little bit more authority. And every time he gave him more authority, not only did things go well, but things went well all across his house. And he wasn't stupid. I mean, you're living in a world where it may not be your God, but if his God is blessing him and blessing you, you don't care. Do you see? So, so he's, just, he's just going like, this guy is a lucky charm. So he moves him, bubbles him up to the very top, and what he says, he looks at a slave who shortly before didn't even speak the language, and he's from far away from a despised group. And he so entrusts him 
and sees so much integrity that he says, you're in charge of everything but the very private things that are only mine. Like the food that, which he eats. He's not going to have Joseph say, can't eat that, but you can't eat that. No, no, no. There, there's some things that are mine. But everything else in this house is yours to rule over. Folks, is that amazing to you? Nobody could pull that off but God. This is the active presence of God in the darkest moment of this young man's life when he didn't know where to turn, he didn't know what was going on. Moses wants you to know God is there and he's active. He may not show himself in the exact same way that he did in Joseph's life, but I tell you, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you don't, come, because I have no promises for you today. But if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, in your darkest moments, God is not only there, but he's active. Yeah, but I don't see like everything change. No, I know, I get that. But God is always at work and he's always active. Well, that's a great story, Doug. Here's a guy who did nothing wrong. Mistreated. And God is present. And he lived happily ever after. But does life work that way? <laughs> Didn't you wish, don't you wish it was only like one event and we got over it and everything else was good for the rest of our lives? Yes. <sighs> Bummer. Doesn't exactly happen like that, does it? So God bubbles this guy up to the top. He's in charge of the entire house of Potiphar. The only thing he's not in charge of are the private matters of Potiphar himself. And then the inspired storyteller says this. Look at the beginning. I'm sorry, look at the end of verse 6. Just this one statement. It says, now Joseph was well built and handsome. When you see something like that in the text, you ought to go, that's going to mean something. (laughs) You know, it's not just thrown in there for, oh, by the way, he was 6'2". No, no, it doesn't work like that, does it? So you're thinking like, where's this thing gone? So we got through the first one. he's, He's been mistreated and he's all alone. But no, he's not all alone. God is at work. God is actively present. But he's a good-looking guy. And he's built. Okay, whatever they view built. I, um, I work out at the YMCA. You may not believe that looking at me, but I actually do. <laughs> I swim. Okay, people, really think about it? Yeah, I do, actually. I do. I mean, nobody's ever, I've never walked in there and said, like, well, that guy's well-built. I've never gotten that one. But I've, I've seen a lot of guys in there and go, like, man, that guy, I mean, that guy is, that guy's buff, you know. And so this guy was buff. I mean, he, if he was at the YMCA, people were going, whoa, look at that guy, you know. Um, that's, 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 that's Joseph. And notice what happens. And, and, and we're going to look at the temptation because it's an important part of the story. But it's in service to something much bigger. And I, I don't want you to miss that. 
So let, let's look at this temptation that he's... Because here he is. Everything's going well. Well, not exactly, Joseph. You're going to have another circumstance that's going to come upon you. And this is going to be a mistreatment and a violation and, and a lying about... It's going to be terrible. But you don't know it. So let's see what happens. So what the text says in verse 7. And after a while... His master's wife took notice of Joseph and said to him, come to bed with me. Now, I don't know how that all happened, but that's a, what we might call like direct frontal approach, isn't it? So at some particular point, here is this woman, and who knows what relate, what's going on with her and Potiphar. I have no idea about any of that kind of stuff. But she sees this guy, and in one of the moments, she comes up to him, and nobody's around. She goes, let's sleep together. Like, what do you do in a situation like that? He responds to a, direct, a very direct approach with a very direct statement. And I love this, because what it does is it allows us to see who this guy really is from the inside out. Look at what it says. This is powerful stuff. But he refused. And he said this. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Do you see what's in his heart? Here is a young man, we don't know, but perhaps this was a very attractive woman. Who knows? And rather than seeing her as a slab of meat to use for his own pleasures or as somebody that he can use to maneuver to benefit himself in whatever setting, all of which would be generated from a heart of pure selfishness. Do you see that? I will, either you, I will use you as you try to use me. That was the deal. That was the temptation. He pulled back and saw something much bigger. Here was a man who loved God and loved his neighbor. And he could look at her and he could say, do you know that, that I am in relationship with your master? And I've made a commitment to him and my integrity before him is very, very important. And if I sleep with you, a man who has entrusted everything with me but his pri- to me but his private issues, I would be violating a trust with that man. Do you know? When a young man sleeps with a woman that is not his wife, or he's not married to, he is always violating the trust of somebody else. He is violating the trust of her father, or her mother, or her brother. Or if she's married, her husband. There is always violation of trust. Every time there's adultery, when you step to take sex out of God's intention, all you do is pull relationships apart. That's all you do. And Joseph knew that. And he said, I cannot do this because all it will do is fracture. And what's more, 
I stand before a holy God. And I will do nothing that will violate what he wants. There is nothing that will protect us in a world of sexual perversity apart from our heart before God. That's just the truth. I mean, when I counsel with young men on issues of pornography and things along those na that nature, I mean, we, we often talk about building walls and, and, and their relationship. And I, I'm all for that, you know, like find out where you're weak and we got to have accountability there. Great stuff, great stuff. But there is no wall that a young man, that we can set up for a young man that he can't get over, under, or around at another moment. That's just the way it works. Unless, at the very core of his heart, is somebody who first and foremost loves God and submits all of his passions and desires and interests to his. And then sees anything else as a violation of the second commandment. Sex is always a violation of the first and second commandment. Always, always, always outside of marriage. Within marriage, all it does is build intimacy. Do you see the difference? God has his beautiful intention. And Joseph sees that as a slave with a woman that he could use to manipulate for whatever his purpose is. And he'll say, I'll have none of it. So this man takes a stand. <laughs> and everything's okay after that. No, not exactly. Because Potiphar's wife, the seductress, she doesn't buy into the way he sees life. So you can tell people, this is who I am. They may respect what you say and they may not. So look at her second approach. Her first one is this kind of this direct frontal approach. Look at her second approach, verse 10. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. This woman was relentless. He explained it the first time. And what happens two days later? Will you go to bed with me? No. Three days later. How about today? No. Next afternoon, huh? No. And he finally got to the point where wherever she is, I'm not going to be. <laughs> I mean, like, here, I'm, I'm, I, you know what? I think I have something I have to do over there. You, do, do you see? I mean, very smart. It's just, but it's relentless. He tells her who he is. It, for her, it means nothing. She's all long gone, fallen to temptation. But he's holding on. And so temptation, which can be frontal, it can be ongoing, it just keeps coming at us and coming at us. Other times it can be in, intentionally intensified. Because notice what happens next. Verse 11. One day, he went into the house to attend his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. Do you think that's strange? 
I mean, do you ever find yourself in a situation where the hair in the back, yeah, the hair in the back of your neck kind of, I don't feel right. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Joseph, when you walked in that day and you saw that, like, what were you feeling? I got an idea what the guy was feeling. So he walks in. I mean, there's, there's people everywhere. And no one to be found, which means she's colluding with all kinds of other people to get out of here, stay out of here, be, whatever. I don't know. She set the whole thing up. If you're in the midst of temptation and it comes and it keeps coming, don't think there won't also be those times of incredible intensity. That's what happens. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. That was smart. How smart would it have been in that moment for him to say, could I tell you again why I do what I do? No, she didn't listen the first time. She's been relentless. There are times when the only thing you can do is run. And that's what you do. So the pressure comes on, all this onslaught, this t- and she's relentless. And finally, he just runs. And I wish I could tell you, in the next scene, everybody stood back, all the household slaves, Potiphar, and said, You're a good man. We want to keep you around here. Is it possible to do the right thing and to suffer for it? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. We say it all through the scriptures. This guy did everything right, brothers and sisters. He ran when there was no other option, left his cloak. And look at what she does. She will malign him and indirectly blame her husband in the process. Look at what happens. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Like, where were they before this? <laughs> I mean, like, come on out now. I don't know what that was all like. But, but nonetheless, they weren't that far away for her to call them. Look, she said, This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And they have to be thinking in the back of their mind, I'm not so sure that's exactly what happened, right? I mean, come on. But but what are they going to say? They're household slaves. They're not going to be able to say much else. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. So she maligns him in front of all the people he was in charge of. And then she maligns him before Potiphar himself. Verse 16. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. This is one crafty woman. I'll take that cloak, thank you. Don't you touch that cloak. It's staying right beside me until my hubby comes home. Then she told him, I don't think she would have called him her hubby. I'm just saying, but anyway. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave, you brought us. Do do you see what she's doing? 
that guy you brought here and promoted, that guy, who incidentally is really good looking and handsome, but anyway, um, uh, that guy you brought came to me to make sport of me. Soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. So what are you going to do about it? I want you to notice something in verse 19. This is very interesting. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Who do you think he was most angry with? With Joseph? Listen, if his anger was all about, I was duped by this Hebrew guy, that bum, and he is the captain of the guard, probably with rights of execution, what do you think he might do? Kill him in a second. But what if his anger is over the fact that he's been shamed by his wife publicly? And to save face, He's got to go against the slave. She's blamed him. She's faced him. And he's mad. But I would argue that he didn't believe her. So what does he do? Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Does that seem fair to you? It, it is one thing to say, I did nothing wrong and my brothers sold me into slavery. It's a little bit different to say, but I did the right thing and I'm now in prison. Do you, do you see that? Now, I want to make, an, I, I make a statement and I know this is somewhat, you can probably, probably find scholars on both sides, but it strikes me that it's the only way to understand, it's the best way, to, no, wait, it's the best way to understand the text. I've often wondered where the prison was. The expression, captain of the guard, is used five times in the entire Old Testament. All in Genesis 39, 40, and 41. That's it. And so in chapter 40, when it says a cupbearer and a baker are put into the king's prison in the house of the captain of the guard. Says it twice in chapter 40 and twice in chapter 41. I would want to argue that the prison was there within the complex of Potiphar's home itself. Because every other time captain of the guard is used, it's used of him. Directly, it's directly used of him, so you would reference it back to this. So I, I, would, I would want to argue. So, so I think what he's doing is he's angry, he's upset, he's got to do something with him, so he's going to put him in a prison. Now, he would have had a big complex. So where was the prison? I, know, I have no idea. But somewhere in, he had a guy that was a jailer, and he put him in there, and he said, that's where he's going to be. And it was obviously the same prison that Pharaoh would use whenever he wanted to put his special 
um, people, his special officials into prison. That's where they ended up. So this guy apparently was even over that. And I want you to notice what the inspired storyteller tells us. If when I read this, if you don't feel like deja vu, you haven't heard me at all today. Listen to what the text says. While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. Is that a deja vu for you at all? Like, I think I heard that one before. He showed him kindness and granted him favor. You ever hear that one before? In the eyes of the prison warden. So whoever this guy is underneath Potiphar, where the prison is, it's like a deja vu. You stick this guy in there. I've often thought, Joseph's life is kind of like a buoy. I, I'm not a fisherman. No, no, not a buoy. What, not, well, like a buoy. No. What do you call those things you put on the... A bobber. Thank you. A buoy. I guess you don't... You won't put a buoy on the end of a fishing rod. Okay. You can see how I know about fishing. Okay. A bobber. What's that? It'd be tough. It'd be t- but you get a big one, no doubt. Anyway, okay. So think of a bobber. What happens when you push a bobber into the water? Pops back up. Remember that old thing? Weebles will wobble, but they won't fall down. Okay. So you push down this bobber, and he's sold as a slave. And what happens? Boop. Pops back up. Now, not as far as where he was, because he's a slave now, but pops back up. Why? Because... At the end of the day, God is actively present. And what happens when you push it down again? Boop. Pops back up. And that's the, that's the sense you have there in this passage. You say, like, this happened before. It did. He showed him kindness and granted him favor. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he made him responsible for all that was done there. Is that a deja vu or what? The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Do you see that? I've done nothing wrong, Lord. Why am I facing this? And God says, I am actively present. God, I did the right thing. I stood against temptation. They threw me into prison. God says, I am actively present. Folks, do you get that? This passage does teach us about temptation and how to resist. And it's really good stuff. I'm all for that. But that's in service to something much bigger. When people mistreat you as his his child, when people malign you, God is always actively present with his people. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I can't help you. I can't, I can't offer you any words of comfort from this passage. Except God's a gracious God to all people anyway, so okay, loosely. But he commits himself to his own in a very special way. Do you see that? thinking about this you know that passage in Isaiah 43 when you pass through the fire what's it say I will be with you you come to the book of Hebrews 13 
And it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We never walk alone. We never walk alone, even if we feel it. It's not true, folks. In 1 Peter, Peter is speaking. And he says something pretty powerful. He says, look, if you face judgment from people because you did something wrong, <laughs> there's nothing for you to rejoice in. Like if, I go, if I'm driving 65 miles an hour in a 35-mile 35, 35 lane and I get caught, pulled over by a police officer, I deserve whatever I get. I don't like it, but I can't say, man, I truly suffering for Jesus. It has nothing to do with Jesus. Peter says, you can't do that. However, if you are a baker living in Washington State, and you love Jesus, you say, I can't participate in light of my own religious convictions, with this marriage, this marriage between two people of the same sex, I just can't do it. I'm not against them I, at all. I know them, but I can't do it. And then you suffer. That's honorable by God, isn't it? See, that's different. And Peter argues, live out your faith. In a powerful way, I heard somebody say this week, I was telling Tim about it, he said, when it comes to our life, we should live out loud, was the term he kept using. I love that. Live out loud your faith. And if you suffer for that, that's okay. Because God says, as Peter tells us, God is with us. I want you to think of the only person that could truly say, I have been unjustly mistreated. There is only one person in all of history that can say that. Because you know what? I can say people have mistreated me, but I normally have some skin in the game and responsibility. Maybe I egged them on. They shouldn't have done that, but I egged. Or, or something. You know what I'm saying? Often that's the case. Jesus. Here was the perfect God-man who all through his ministry was sometimes called illegitimate and, and not demon-possessed. And that lousy person from a third world, third city place called Nazareth. One thing, maligned after another after another. You're a devil. Maligned constantly. And for doing what was right, he was put on a cross. I, with things I do, I, I'm always like mixed. He was perfect. And he was mistreated and he was maligned. And on the cross, I, I don't fully understand all this. I don't think any theologian does. There is this sense in which God the Father actively distanced himself from the Son 
but was still actively present because Jesus can say on one hand, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And on the other hand, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I, I don't fully get that. But I do know this. There is a sense in which he was, he was abandoned by the Father so that you and I would never have to be. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not perfect. None of us are. But by his grace, you're trying to walk with him. Just one onslaught after another onslaught, another onslaught, and it just seems unending. And I did the right thing, Doug, and that happened. I lost my job. God's word to you is he's actively present. He's actively present with you as his believing child when you are maligned and mistreated. going to read a familiar text to you and just pray that God's spirit will use it to encourage you afresh with who he is and what he's done. Romans chapter 8. Just listen. What then shall we say in response to these things? Listen to this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, a lot of people can, Doug. I know. But in a way that will stop him from accomplishing his purposes in our lives and showing us his glory and his goodness? Nobody. Nobody. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him Graciously give us all things. All things we want? No. All things we need? Yes. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or, or persecution or famine or nakedness or, or danger or sword or, or anything else you want to throw in there? No. And all these things we are more than conquerors Through him who loved us. I love this. Paul is trying to give you every polarity possible to include everything in between. He's thinking like, I don't want them to miss a thing. So here he goes. I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, any powers, height nor depth, and in case I forgot anything, nor anything else in creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. My brother and sister, as you're seeking to walk with him, not perfectly, none of us are, but you're you're in the process of repenting and, and, and drawing closer to him by his grace. I want you to know something. God is actively present in your life even when people are against you. Don't forget that. You are never alone. If God is for us, ultimately no one can be against us. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for giving us these stories. True stories, Lord, of true people through whom you work in ways that bring us great encouragement. Lord, I would pray if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, they can't claim this story because they're not part of the family. Would you work by your spirit in their lives? To help them to come to the end of themselves as a sinner, as a rebel. Fall at the knees of Jesus who has died for them. And find forgiveness, find acceptance into the family of God. And find a transformed life. And for my brothers and sisters, Lord, this is never an excuse, this passage, for making bad decisions. This is a passage, Lord, for us who as we seek to walk with you as feeble followers, we often face mistreatment, injustice from, other, injustice from others. Lord, will you remind us afresh and show us in ways that only you can that you are actively present. And Father, for that, we will thank you. In Christ's name, amen.